Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Journey again. My name is Randy. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do so. And we're excited about today. We've got some really cool things going on, a baptism later on. And we're going to welcome those who are uh, going to be a part of that and, and, and encourage and support uh, Campbell and her baptism. So we're excited about that. And I do want to just echo what uh, Richie said about giving someone around the world that you don't even know uh, a gift in the name of someone that you love because they don't need anything necessarily. And you can give that uh, to someone and bless them and give someone a blessing by having that given in their name. Very important. We're, we're up on Christmas. It's coming up. Wow, we're just almost there. It just uh, slipped up on us this year, has us anyway. And uh, we've been preaching last week. We finished a series called How to Bible. That was a lot of fun. We talked about uh, how do we know the Bible's true, about a lot of things. And today we're going to kind of switch gears and kind of move into uh, our Christmas time and talk about uh, the birth of the baby. You know what I've noticed the last, just the last few years is that um, uh, kind of an interesting phenomenon about when a baby is born about gender reveals. Uh, Have you noticed that, that that has really become the big, big deal? And uh, if you haven't seen any of that, you know, uh, or maybe your kind of, your generation didn't do that, it's all about how to tell people if it's a boy or a girl. And so uh, uh, we got a little short clip here of some gender reveal fails. Uh, when something works well, it's great, but when it doesn't, it's, it's kind of awkward. So let's watch this real quick. I told you I had to have two of them hanging at a time. Looks like some kids weren't so happy about the new sibling coming along, right? 
Well, we, did, we have a new grandbaby. Uh, she's a year old, and we didn't do a gender reveal as far as I can remember, but they did do a, uh, a baby reveal, the fact that they were pregnant. And it was a surprise to us. It seemed like everybody else in the family, but Lori and I knew. And so uh, we, we went up. Uh, should have known something was up because our daughter and son-in-law drove all the way up from South Carolina. And they, as soon as they got here, we got in a car to drive another hour or so to, to, to Florence. And they, they didn't even complain about that. So we get up there and we go in to the restaurant. We sat down and we noticed that our middle daughter and our son-in-law were extremely serious. And uh, later Lori said, I thought that one of them was going to die or something. I didn't know what, the, what was going to happen. They were going to give us bad news because they were about to cry. And everybody, you know, you could tell there was a, a tension in the room. And our, our son-in-law stepped out and we kind of in the middle of things. And he came back and he handed uh, us a gift and we still were clueless. Lori and I didn't, never even thought about this happening. And we opened up uh, matching cups that says, congratulations, grandparents. But that was uh, over a year, almost two years ago. And uh, now we have uh, Sophie. I think there might be a picture of Sophie. Uh, there's the baby girl at Thanksgiving. She is awesome, awesome. Well, you know, a baby's a big deal, right? They're a really big deal, especially for the grandbaby, what I've discovered. But you know what? The greatest baby reveal story happened about 2,000 years ago, much greater than anything that we might have, as wonderful as our kids or grandkids might be. Uh, And this is how it went. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not yet yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the tribe rulers of Judah, because for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in their dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
You know, as I read that story, I would say that most of you probably knew it, not because I was reading or because it was on the screen, but because this is kind of a part of our collective cultural knowledge. We just automatically recognize the story. We almost know what comes next. We can almost mouth the words, the Christmas story, the Christmas story. Now, it has nothing to do with the other Christmas story maybe you heard about, the one with the Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle BB gun with a compass in the stock. You probably heard of that one. But that doesn't really have anything to do with the real Christmas story. This is the real one, the one about Mary and Joseph and the city of Bethlehem and no room in the inn, the baby born in the stable, laid in a manger, star in the sky, shepherds in the field, angels uh, in the sky, and, and then wise men who come. You probably all know the story, right? You probably think, I know the story really, really well. I've heard it all of my life. But let me ask you, do you really know the story? And beyond that, do you know the backstory? Because sometimes the backstory is almost as interesting and as important as the story itself. So do you know the backstory to the birth of Jesus Christ? For example, do you know that the prophecies that had been given to the people of Israel hundreds, even thousands of years before, came fulfilled in this one birth? All the prophecies that had been given. In fact, the first prophecy that was given was given back almost in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall of mankind, where after uh, Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, and they had fallen and eaten the fruit and disobeyed God, when God told them, one day we'll all come back around. One day the Son of Man, the Son of God, a Messiah, will come, and He will crush the head of the evil one, the one who deceived you, the one who came to destroy and kill, will be destroyed Himself. When that prophecy was given, Jesus fulfilled it, and many, many more as well. Did you know that the birth of Jesus, in fact, fulfilled every prophecy concerning the Messiah or the Savior given in the Old Testament? And there were many of them. That he would be a descendant of the house of David, that he would come from the line of Judah, specifically the family of Jesse. And Jesus was all of those uh, things. He fulfilled them that the Messiah would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem, and that Mary and Joseph, who lived almost 100 miles north of there, who had no plans to go to Bethlehem previously, but who had to go there because of a census to be registered, they traveled down, and that what happened there in Bethlehem uh, was not planned in, for a pregnant woman. It was not an important thing or a thing that should have happened. Did you know that Isaiah, the prophet, predicted the Messiah would also be presented with gifts. The wise men had no plans to go to Bethlehem until they saw a star, and then they went and gave gifts to this newborn baby. Did you know all of those prophecies, and not just about his birth, not just information or prophecies predicting when Jesus and where Jesus would be born, but also how Jesus would have to hide to escape death, how he would travel to Egypt, which was definitely not planned for this young family how he would be despised and rejected as an adult, how he'd be betrayed for a specific amount of money down to the penny, how the executioners would gamble for his clothes, how he would be buried in a borrowed tomb, how he would rise back to life again. Every one of those prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And you know what? The chances of that happening in a single life make winning the lottery look easy. Like lottery is no big deal if compared to the chances that are happening in one person's life. In fact, Peter Stoner, who was chairman of the mathematics and astronomy department at Pasadena 
uh, City College and chairman of the science division at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, took it upon himself, and one time he had a class, 600 students, and they decided to figure the odds of Jesus being the Messiah. Just the simple odds of this one person born in history being the Messiah. And his work was reviewed by a committee of mathematicians and found to be totally accurate. So 601 people tried to figure this out. And they found out that the odds of just one biblical prophecy coming true in the life of Jesus was one in 400 million. One in 400 million. Just one prophecy coming true, the likelihood of that. So it was a pretty specific person that fulfilled that and not by accident, right? But they went a step further and they looked at eight very specific prophecies. I find this fascinating myself. Here were the prophecies. The first was the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a tiny town. It was not a big city. So that was very unlikely. That's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The, pro- the chances that a messenger would come to prepare the way for the Messiah, this being John the Baptist, that was predicted in Malachi 3, 1, predicted that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. How often would that happen? That was in Zechariah 9, 9. The Messiah would be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands, Zechariah 13. The Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12. The betrayal money would be used to purchase a potter's field, Zechariah eleven thirteen. The Messiah would remain silent while he was being tried and afflicted in Isaiah 53, 7. And that the Messiah would die by having his hands and feet pierced. So they took those eight prophecies and they looked at them and the odds and they calculated the odds and found that the likelihood of all eight things happening in one person's life was one in 10 to the 17th power. I think that's up on the screen. The odds of that happening, eight prophecies in one person's life, that's the odds. I don't even know what that number is. I'm not sure there you could even uh, say that number, whatever it is, but that's the odds of that. Now, what I love even more though, and this is one of my favorite comparisons, I love the way that Stoner illustrated the meaning of this number. Now, being a mathematician, uh, you know, they can sometimes put it in the terms we can understand. I don't understand numbers like that, all right, or what a trillion is, really. But he asked the reader to imagine, if you would, if you took the state of Texas. How many people have been to Texas? I think we all agree Texas is a big place. It takes a long time to drive across. But if you took the whole state of Texas and you were to fill the state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars, knee-deep in silver dollars, And then you were to fly over the state of Texas and you were to take one silver dollar with a black check mark on it and drop it in the state of Texas and stir the entire state up and then ask someone to walk into the state of Texas anywhere, any place and pick up one silver dollar and that one silver dollar they picked up happened to be the one with the black mark on it. Now, what are the odds of that happening? Not very good, right? But he said, that's what that number represents. That's the odds of Jesus actually fulfilling all these prophecies that had been prophesied down through the years by various different people. And you know what? Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. He fulfilled over 108 very specific prophecies. I mean, that may not mean a lot to us, but it should as we think about people, verified people who searched and waited for this child to be born for hundreds and thousands of years, and then he was born. That would be statistically impossible if it were not the Son of God. That is amazing. 
and that's evidence. Most of us don't know the impact of the very prophecies of Jesus and the one he fulfilled. Maybe we also don't know about the birth of Jesus himself as well. You know, we think we all know that, right? We've seen the Christmas card, the picture of the manger there with the gentle animals leaning over, gazing at the, the baby. We see this white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired baby with red cheeks. It looks like he's six months old, supposed to be a newborn. But, you know, that's the picture that we have right there. That's probably not the reality of it all. Not the reality. It wasn't that all that clean. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident. The unplanned trip to Bethlehem was pretty difficult for a nine-month pregnant woman. That was a pretty difficult trip. Most of us wouldn't want to try to make one that alone or with our spouse, right? Probably she barely made it to Bethlehem. When they got into town, they knew the baby was coming, and they were desperate to try to find a room. But, but remember, this was a time of the census, and this tiny town that normally would have had shelter and probably open rooms in the inn, it was packed full of people who had come back to town to register for the census themselves. And so there was nowhere to stay, and so they were shoved out, and they, she barely made it to town, and the baby was coming. They were trying to find shelter. There was no luck and no room in the inn. You know, some of you have stories about barely making it to hospital or water breaking on the way when you're about to have a baby. We've heard those stories and experienced them, just getting into the hospital when the baby is born. But imagine if there were no hospital. Imagine if there were no midwife. Imagine if there were no one in town that you even knew because while they may have had descendants, they didn't have family in town. They just got there trying to find a place to go, a place to stay, a place to have the baby. But all they found was this outdoor livestock area. And you know, the picture shows a nice little sheltered uh, stable, but more than likely it was a cave dug into the a rock. Dirty, wet, probably, open to the elements. I'm sure it was smelly. And they had to use a feeding trough, a manger for the bassinet. You know, isn't it amazing how much we have to have for our babies now? How much stuff we have to buy? And when you're going, you got, you know, baby bags and all this stuff to pack. You can't carry a lot on a donkey, 100 miles. And so it's likely they had, like, nothing. <laughs> they were not prepared at all. But they had a manger to lay them in that probably had animal saliva and bugs and even animal feces. You know, cows don't really care what they eat out of. But this is where the baby was, was laid. And instead of being that glorious picture that we sometimes see and think of, it was probably a sad and lonely scene. There was no family nearby. There was none of the luxuries of home or of a hospital, obviously. There was an awkward husband there who didn't know what to do himself. There was no heat. There was no medical care, no nourishment for Mary after she gave birth. Clean straw for the baby, probably not, not there at all. That would have been a pipe dream. Mary had brought these strips of cloth that she used to wrap the baby tightly. It was called swaddling in that day. I think they're back to that today as well. But Mary had to do it all herself. There was no nurse. There was no midwife. There was no one to come in to take the baby so she could rest for a while. There was no way to help explain how to hold the baby and nurse the baby. And, and Mary was very young. In fact, in that day, teenagers would sometimes be engaged as early as 15. A young teenage girl, a long ways from home, no family, in a cave, just given birth, caring for herself and the baby. Oh, yeah, Joseph was there. But guys, how much help are we in a moment like that? Most of us have no idea what to do. Some shepherds came along. I'm sure they were clueless as well. Maybe we never thought about what it was really like. Not a very comfortable environment for the baby to be born. And probably not at all what we have in our mind when we think about a nativity scene. 
But you know what? Mary and Joseph were tougher. They were of a tough generation, I believe, tougher than you and I would have been for sure. We don't have a lot of information on Joseph at all, but it does tell us this about Mary and how she looked at this. The Bible gives an insight in Luke account, Luke chapter 2. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary didn't focus on how difficult the circumstances were around her and the birth and and the situation because she knew what mattered most was who this child was. Not what's going on at the moment, but, but who this child was, who the baby was. And recall the words of the angel given almost over nine months before who had said this in Luke chapter one, you will conceive and give birth to a child a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, Mary knew what you and I can't really grasp. She knew what the birth of Jesus really meant. She may have been young, but she got it. She got it. She understood She understood that this was God himself in human form. God who was coming down to planet earth to call the world back to himself. This was God so loving the world that he was giving his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that brings up the third and final thing that you might not have known or thought about the Christmas story. What does the Christmas story really mean? What does it mean to us today? Is it just a history lesson what happened 2,000 years ago and how Jesus came to our world. Maybe you don't know what it means today. Obviously, or hopefully, you know that Christmas is not about shopping and buying gifts. It's not about the decorations that we drag out and put all over our home. It's not about snow, whether it snows or not, or sleigh bells or mistletoes or trees. It's not about eggnog or it's not about cookies. It's not about Buddy of the Elf or Elf on a Shelf or any other elf in any other form today. Uh, It's not about all those things, and it's not even about family. You know, as good as family is, and I love when family comes in for Christmas. Christmas isn't about any of those things. Christmas is about a story about a God who would stop at nothing to reach out to call you back into a relationship with Him. It's about a God who loved you so much He would do anything, including giving His only Son to come to a harsh world to live. A God who loves you. If you would, in your mind, set up an imaginary scale from one to 10, with one being a God who would care less about you, which by the way, is the false gods that are idols, they care less about you. They want you to just, you know, give to them false gods. That's number one, a God who has no interest in a relationship with you. But on the other extreme, think of 10 being a God who is absolutely enthralled with you, a God who is taken with you, a God who would stop at nothing to reach out to you, to connect to you, and who created you specifically to have a relationship with him. And on your imaginary scale, where would you put the God we've been talking about? I hope you would put him at a 10 or well beyond, a place where a God belongs to be a And Christmas is proof of really how God feels about us, proof of his love for us. In fact, in Romans 5, it says God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just come to our world for us. He died for us. God wanted to show us how much he loved us, and and he did that by coming down to become one of us. In fact, actually, 
He came to become one, even less than one of us. Because he said he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve others. He came as one who would give his life for other people, putting us before himself. And maybe that's what you didn't really think about when you think about Christmas. Now, how do we respond to this amazing, generous gift that God's given to us? Well, the great thing is we're not forced to respond in any way. But how you respond is kind of a decision that you'll make. Do you know the natural response to someone giving you a gift is that you want to give them a gift back, right? In fact, a lot of us kind of live in fear of the fact that someone's going to give us a gift and we don't, we're not prepared to give them something back. So sometimes I've known of people who even wrapped up things uh, accidentally, you know, uh, or, or on purpose to give to someone if they're short a gift, you know, that's a smart thing to do. We want to respond to someone who, who gives to us. So the natural response to God giving himself for us should be for us to give ourselves back to him. And that's what he asked for us to do. In fact, he, all he wants is a relationship with us. Your willingness to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior is the gift that you can give to him freely and the gift that he really wants from you. And if you haven't done that, then I would like to talk to you about it. I would love to have that conversation. If you've not personally made a decision and, and intentionally made a decision to follow Jesus, you know, it's one thing to believe in a God like this. It's another thing to decide that you want that God to be your father and his son Jesus to be your savior and to make that decision and to firm it up and then to act on that. And I would love to talk to you about that. You can let me know by phone, email, any, any way. Catch me before you leave today. I would love to have the conversation with you because that's the most important thing you could take away from this Christmas. In fact, it's the most important thing that you can do in your entire lifetime. And then the second thing we can, way we can respond is through worship, through worship. We had some incredible worship time earlier, but you know, it's not just the songs that we sing, it's also the way we live our lives. Because after in relationship with Him, we want to make it a priority to worship Him with our lives, living for Him, and sharing the good news with other people. And one way that we can do that is to, to share, uh, as we come collectively in worship, you know, sometimes we just say, I'm going to put God, God's number one in my life, but he comes second to everything. Comes second to everything and everybody. And that's not worship. Worship is, is making a priority of him. It's making a priority of him with our time and with our adoration, our singing to him and our worship of him, our gathering for him. It's, it's, it's making time for him in space in our life for reading his word and hearing from him. It's making a priority in our life to give back to him like we're blessed financially. And another way that we can do that, we're going to celebrate here in just a few moments, is through the Lord's Supper. We're going to invite you, if you are a believer, to join us in that in just a few moments. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so these moments that we're about to enter into become an important part of our worship. They become a priority for us. In fact, if there were no singing and there was no preaching and we were the only ones here, it would be important for us to gather today, to come together, to share in the Lord's Supper. It's one thing that we just can't do alone. 
our worship is collective, and this is a big, very big part of that. And so we make it a part of our service every week. And the way that we do that is we just come forward down the, uh, the side aisles to the tables, partake, and then circle back. And if you are not comfortable coming forward, you prefer someone to bring it to you, you raise your hand, and one of our deacons will quickly provide that for you. But this is an important time in our life, and we want to invite you because, like Paul just said, as we read there, that whenever we eat this, we proclaim the Lord's death. It is a way of us not only worshiping Him, but also a way of us announcing to others the importance of what Jesus did for us. So we invite you, if you are a believer, to join us in that. I want to ask you to bow with me, if you would, for a word of prayer, and then we'll go into our time of communion. And again, I'll be down front if you would like to talk or have someone pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. God, um, we think we know the story. It's so familiar to us. And yet, when we look at the backstory, we look at the prophecies that were given hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus' birth to remind us of your love for us and your promise that a Messiah would come. And Lord, we look at how intricately Jesus came into our world and how he fulfilled those prophecies to prove who he was. Father, we have to just shake our head and, and ask, why don't we see this more often? And why don't we acknowledge this? God, we look at the story and we know that Jesus didn't come into a neat, comfortable world. He came into a harsh, uncomfortable place. But he did that for us. He didn't come into a king, uh, king family. He came into a peasant family. But he became the king and he wants to be the king of our lives. And God, we think about how we respond to all of this, what it means to us today. It means that you have a calling on our life and you, Father, you reach out to pursue us and draw us to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to respond with our life and not, not just our extra, but our best. We would give the thing that really matters to you, our hearts and our lives to you in commitment. And Lord, we would lay it all on the line. And Father, speaking of that, thank you for Jesus coming. Not only his birth, but his life and his death, when he laid it all on the line for us because he loved us. Heavenly Father, we come now in worship and praise in this time of communion, and we come to remember and to proclaim our Lord's death. We thank you for the cup and the juice. As we take them, may we be reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus. I pray these things in his holy name. Amen.